The year was 1930, when a mystery novel was written called Half-Mast Murder. A man by the name of Donald Gordon was the book reviewer for news of books, and he needed to find something to say about what he deemed a rather unremarkable mystery novel. And so he settled on this description, a satisfactory whodunit. And as far as we know, it was the first time that 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 word whodunit came into play, a, a play on spelling and grammar that caught on. Now, other writers tried to do something with it. Some of them tried to actually spell out with the correct, you know, word done, D-O-N-E. Others wanted to turn it into who did it. But all those versions lacked the same punch. And who done it became so popular that by 1939, at least one language pundit had declared it already heavily overworked and predicted that it would soon be dumped into the taboo bin. Well, history has proven that prophecy false because the term whodunit is still around. I love whodunit movies. Anybody, anybody with me? I love whodunit shows. In fact, my wife at times can get a little bit irritated with me because I'm guessing whodunit early on when it, whatever it is that we're watching together. So today is what we call Palm Sunday. Um, This is the Sunday before Easter that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as the people waved their palm branches and they sang his praise. But within days, he would be falsely accused, falsely tried. He would be beaten, which was enough alone to kill a person. And by Friday, Jesus dies on a cross. Just a thought. Jesus is perfect. Perfect. No sin ever. So isn't it shocking to consider how many people wanted him dead? And today, I'm raising the question, really? Who done it? When it comes to Jesus' death, who done it? So I want to welcome you here today. I really do. I want to thank you for being a part of today. If, if you are joining us online from uh, wherever you may be, thanks for taking the time to join in. I um, also just want to welcome everybody at our uh, campuses, uh, whether at Garden City, at Adrian, at Lewisburg, Harrisonville, Lee Summit, thank you guys for being a part of today. Now, today, as we talk about who wanted Jesus dead, we are reminded of our brothers and sisters today around the world whose lives are threatened because they follow him. 
And that is why I, I want to make a special invitation that you would choose to be a part of something very special to us this coming Friday, April the 2nd, called Secret Church. And it is a time, we've, we've been doing this for several years now, we come together on Good Friday for an extended period of time where, where we worship together, I mean, we're singing together, we're praying together, we're, we're, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we, we get training together. And you ask, well, why do you do this? And the reason is because this is what many people around the world who have to meet in secret because their lives are threatened, this is how they do it. And so they will meet in a secret location, and when they come together, they spend as long as they possibly can. It's really foreign to the way we do pretty much anything. There are rarely moments that in America, the church comes together and says, on this night, God, we got nowhere else to be. We got no other appointments we need to make. We're gonna hang out with you tonight as long as you want to hang out. And so that's what happens this Friday night. It, it really does last a while. It, it starts at 7. It, it sometimes, we, and it depends on when we start each year, but it, it may go for four hours or so because we are going to not only worship together, but we're going to unload some content to you. It's what would happen in those, in those situations. This is sort of like taking an entire class in one night. That's what it is. So it's not built for kids. I'm being truthful with you. It's just too long of a period usually for them. So we encourage you to get child care so that you as parents can just be there and not have to worry um, about them. What do you need to bring? Your lawn chair. Bring a lawn chair. If you forget, I bet we can, we can get you covered, but bring your lawn chair. We'll have snacks because it's a, you know, a longer period of time. We'll have the training but I so want to invite you to join us. You can find the information online, heartoflife.org. It'll give you the exact location. You have to put in the exact location, all right? So when you see the address, when you enter that, you gotta put it in exact or it'll send you somewhere else, all right? So this year, we're, we're gonna be gathering at, at, at the farm. So if you've been to some of the baptism celebrations that we've had before in, in July, our 4th of July celebration, it's across the highway from that, all right? So if you're here, if you're at one of the campuses, there are some little sheets of paper, hard copies that are available at the Eye Center. You can pick one up before you go. I want you, uh, I want to invite you to be a part of what is almost always just a very special night together. We're looking forward to it, all right? Let's dig in to the text today. Luke chapter 13, verse 31. This is how it reads. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Herod wants to kill you. This has been the pattern of Jesus' life. I will remind you, even from the time he was born, this is the pattern of his life. Uh, let, let, let's talk a little bit about that. For example, we know that when Jesus was born, Herod the Great wanted him dead. 
Now, Herod the Great is a different Herod than we just read, and and we'll come back and get this one. But Herod the Great, he's the father. He's the father and the patriarch of what's called the Herodian dynasty. The Jews hated Herod. Not only was he not Jewish, he's an Idumean, but he's vicious. This man was so vicious that anyone that might take his throne, that included some of his own family members as well as anybody else around him that he thought might be a rival, he killed him. Augustus said it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. He's vicious. And we know he's so paranoid that the story is when he heard from the wise men that a baby is being born in Bethlehem, this baby, a king, Herod just massacres every male child to and under in the whole area around Bethlehem. Herod the Great wanted Jesus dead just for being born. But we also know from what we've studied, there is the city of Nazareth that wanted Jesus dead. Now, this is significant because this is Jesus' hometown. This is where he grew up. And you remember, we looked at this story together in Luke. Jesus delivers his first sermon right in in this synagogue of Nazareth. This is where his family went to church. And it's said that when the sermon was done, they were so mad at Jesus that they wanted to throw him off a cliff. His own hometown wants him dead. But we also know that the Jewish leaders want him dead. And this started immediately in Jesus' ministry. Um, He goes to the temple right at the beginning. Remember, it was the Passover. It's when he forms a whip out of those cords and, and he just clears out the temple. He drove out anyone who was using the temple for financial gain. He, he poured out the coins. He turned over the tables and he said, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And then he said, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll what? I'll raise it up. They thought he was talking about the building. Jesus was talking about his own life. Why? Because he knew where this was going. They would want him dead. Now, when it came to the temple concessions, if you will, the Sadducees were the religious leaders who typically oversaw that. But when I use the term religious leaders here, it's broader than the Sadducees. It's the Pharisees. It's the chief priests. It's the high priest. It's the scribes. They all wanted him dead. The gospel writer John uses the term the Jews to refer to this group of people. He's not talking about the whole population of of the nation. He's talking about the leaders. And why was this? Because Jesus condemned their works system. He condemned their system of trying to earn salvation. And Jesus did stuff on the Sabbath that made him mad. One day, he healed a man who had been unable to walk for 38 years. That's a long time. And the instruction that Jesus gave him was, pick up your mat and walk. Well, one, Jesus just healed on the Sabbath. That's a problem. Two, now the man is picking up his mat. That's work on the Sabbath. The religious leaders were furious. 
Jesus basically answered and said, you know what? Me and my father, we're going to do whatever we want to on the Sabbath. And the result was they hated him. And they wanted him dead, not just because he broke the Sabbath, because, but because he called God his father, which was equating himself equal with God. They want him dead. And because the religious leaders want Jesus dead, those Jewish leaders then led the Jewish people to want him dead. And when they had their opportunity, Pilate parades Jesus out in front, right, and says, let Barabbas, right, take the place. You take Barabbas, let Jesus go. They say, no, release Barabbas. And he says, what do I do with Jesus? And the mob screams for his blood, crucify him. So we also have to add Pilate to the mix. He's the Roman governor of Judea. He wants Jesus dead. If you read the first verse of Luke chapter 13, it tells us about some Galileans who, whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices. Now remember, Pilate found no fault in Jesus. He wants to wash his hands of the whole deal, but he is intimidated by the Jewish people. The reason is he's been given a job by Rome. His job is, is to keep the peace. And so if these Jewish people stir things up and Rome gets, gets ear that, hey, Pilate can't, can't control the situation, he loses his job. Rome wants peace, so Pilate wants Jesus dead because that quiets the crowd. Eventually, Pilate would release Jesus to the Roman soldiers and we know the story, it would literally be the Roman soldiers who would drive the nails. Man, for a perfect man, that's quite a list. And in today's text, we get one more name, Herod. Now again, this Herod is different than Herod the Great. This is the father, this is the son. When Herod died, he left the kingdom of Israel divided to his sons, Archelaus, Philip, and this Herod that sometimes we know him as Herod Antipas. He was given responsibility for the area around Galilee, so around the Sea of Galilee, uh, the area of Perea, just like his dad, the Jews despised Herod Antipas. He was not Jewish, he was Idumean, but he also was empowered by Rome and he brought in all these idols. When, when Herod Antipas built his own capital city of Tiberias, he built it on top of a Jewish cemetery and then he brought idols and put it on top of that. They hated him. And Herod Antipas is the one who took the life of who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. You remember the story, John condemned Herod Antipas' relationship with his brother's wife. John suddenly found himself in prison and he never got out of that prison. And you remember there was a, a party and there was dancing and Herod promised, hey, whatever you want. And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So now... Now word arrives to Jesus, the same man 
wants you dead. Now, a lot of people believe Jesus has slipped into an area called Perea. That's why this is Herod's domain. But, but come on, why does Herod want him dead? Why does Herod want Jesus dead? The text doesn't really tell us, but I think we can really make some good guesses here. If he's going to kill John the Baptist, who is pointing to who? Jesus. Then it's likely he wants to kill the one that he's pointing to. Or maybe he's saying, I got to get to Jesus before Jesus gets to me. Because if John knows one, or if, if, if Herod knows one thing, he knows that Jesus can do supernatural things. Or maybe just like his father, his sinfulness has driven him to this place of paranoia and fear. Or maybe Herod's just like Pilate. He's a puppet king of Rome and he knows that Jesus can draw crowds. And if Jesus draws crowds, that could mean a rebellion and that could mean trouble for Herod. By the way, not too long after this, For the first time, Herod will be face-to-face with Jesus. The story is that Pilate does not want to make the decision to execute Jesus alone. And so he, he wants somebody else to weigh in on it. He sends Jesus to Herod because Herod happens to be in Jerusalem. This is how the story is given to us by Luke in chapter 23. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priest and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. Verse 12 says, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they have been enemies. It is interesting to me that in all the interrogations of Jesus that happened in this last week, right, by by Annas, by Caiaphas, by Pilate, all the interrogations that Jesus endured, there's only one that we know of to whom Jesus did not speak a word. Herod. And I'm saying I think it reflects a severe judgment. You've heard me harp on this lately. You and I don't cancel anybody when it comes to the kingdom of God. Right? Because you and I don't know. We don't know when a person's actually going to believe. We look at them, we go, that person's never going to. No, we don't know. We don't know if a person ever is. Only Jesus knows who's actually going to reject in the end. I'm saying when Jesus has not even one word for Herod, I'm afraid of what that looks like and the door appears to be closed. How crazy is it that Herod and Pilate become friends? 
I mean, it clearly says they were enemies. They were competing authorities. But we can agree on one thing. We both want Jesus dead. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to both of their power. Which brings back an interesting question for me today when we read the text. And I want you to look at verse 31 again. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Why are the Pharisees warning Jesus? Because they don't like him. We already determined they want him dead. Why are the Pharisees warning Jesus that, that, that Herod wants him dead? Now, I suppose we could say there are a few good Pharisees, and that, that is true. There were a few. But I don't think that's the point here. I think the point is, They are bringing a threat to Jesus because they believe this threat will silence him. They believe that they can force him out of Perea back into Judea where the Sanhedrin are already working their plot to kill Jesus. In other words, I think they're warning Jesus to intimidate him. Use the dog with the biggest bark. That's Herod. In this case, Fox. Check out how Jesus responds to their warning. Verse 32, he replied, go tell that Fox. You think Jesus is complimenting him? No. Uh, I'm quite fond of foxes, but I don't think this is a compliment. Foxes were common in Israel, but they were also destructive. They were cunning and they were sneaky. And I think the main thrust of what Jesus is saying when he calls Herod a fox, foxes were viewed as insignificant. They were third-rate nuisance. Today, I think the way we would see it, we would say it is go tell that rat. That's what we would say. Just a, just a, a, a common nuisance, right? Just a varmint. That, that's how we would use it. Go tell that rat. He's not a lion. He has no power to kill. So watch what Jesus says here, the whole verse He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing today and I'm going to do it tomorrow and I'm going to do it till I'm done. The third day was an expression of completing something. And he says, I'm going to do it till the goal is accomplished. Well, what's the goal? Well, what were the final words of Jesus right from the cross? It is finished. The goal is the work of redemption. And Jesus is going to do what he's going to do until that hour comes. And not Herod nor anybody else has power over it. And then Jesus quotes what must have been a common proverb in the day. Verse 33 He says, in any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. And the only way I know how to describe this to you is you almost have to, it's almost like sarcasm. It's almost like a joke. 
so many prophets died in Jerusalem that it almost became like a badge of authenticity that you were a real prophet if you died there. Jewish tradition tells us, now the Bible doesn't tell us this, but tradition tells us that one of the prophets who died there was Isaiah. They placed him in a hollow log and saw the log in half. And it's interesting that in the hall of faith that we find in Hebrews chapter 11, someone there, it doesn't say who, but it's described as those who are sawed in half. You, if you were a prophet, you would likely end up in Jerusalem because that's where the temple was, that's where the people were, that's where the leadership was, this is where the message has to go. I'm sure because you're walking through this story of Luke. You remember two chapters ago, chapter 11, a reference was made to an Old Testament prophet named Zechariah. Zechariah, we get his story in the Old Testament. He confronted the people about their disobedience to God and they killed him. But they didn't just kill him, they killed him in the temple. They killed him in church. And it says in Luke chapter 11, Jesus expounds on what happens. He says in Luke chapter 11, verse 50, therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. They killed him right in the place where they were supposedly worshiping the very God who had sent him with a message. See, a lot of people don't understand from Israel's history, it's not that their enemies killed their prophets, they killed their prophets. And it was almost like a saying, you can't be a prophet and die outside Jerusalem this capital of the nation, this center of worship, this city of God is where they killed the spokesman of God. It's bitter irony. But for Jesus, he has to die in Jerusalem because that's where all the sacrifices are made. And he has come to be the final sacrifice. All of that leads me back to the question I started with. So who done it? I mean, who killed Jesus? Who, who actually did it? And I, I suppose the answer we would come to in part is basically they all came together. The whole list came together. Now, for many years, the Jews have carried this stigma. They have carried the stigma of the ones who killed Jesus, and that has been used by hateful people to justify hate crimes, Holocaust on Jews, right? I'm telling you, that kind of bigotry is satanic. However, there is a very real sense 
that the Bible holds Israel guilty. They stood there in front of Pilate and screamed for Jesus' death. So I want you to listen to Peter's language. I want you to listen to the, the language of the, of the early chapters of Acts, all right? This, this, is, this is after Pentecost and first sermon that Peter is preaching, and I want you to listen to his language. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. It's like, you did it. You did it. Later on in that same chapter, verse 36, it reads like this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. I mean, we're not really leaving any room for interpretation there. He's like, you did it. You, you turn the page to chapter three. A lame man has been healed. And again, speaking to the crowd, this is, this is the word. You killed the author of life. He's like, you did it. And then, by the time we get to Acts chapter 4, look who's present this time. Not just the people, but the next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. So we got leaders who are present this time, right? I wonder what the message is going to be. Check it out. Then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified. People, leaders, it was the chief priests and the Pharisees that called that initial meeting, right, where they could accuse Jesus. It was Caiaphas, the high priest, who said, we want this one man to die so that a whole nation does not die. And it was out of that that this whole plot unfolds. And from that day, they all wanted him dead. Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, high priests, even the Sanhedrin that was the ruling council. Oh, but it was also Herod and it was also Pilate. Check out this prayer from Acts chapter 4. Because the church, the people who are following Jesus are now, their lives are being threatened. And so listen to their prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Wait a minute. They did what your power, whose power are we talking about here? They're praying. God's power. And whose will are we talking about here? It's God's will. Like, can that be right? And I would tell you that Scripture provides a resounding yes. 
If we back up to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And I could show you, even from the Old Testament, many, many years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, places like Isaiah chapter 53 where, the, where he is talked about, it says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And I'm gonna say that suddenly we have our answer. Who done it? Well, there is a secondary cause that would be sinful people. We all did it. But what Scripture makes clear is there is also a primary cause. God did it. Now, please do not be confused here. This is not... It is not about God the Father who is forcing Jesus the Son to do something that he does not want to do. No, I'm telling you, this is complete agreement. This is complete oneness. This is complete love. Jesus is crystal clear time and time again. Nobody takes his life from him. He chooses to lay it down. There is language in the New Testament that says, for the joy that is set before him, he endures the cross. The father was not reluctant nor resentful in the gift of his son. And the son was not reluctant or resentful in the gift of his life. This ties into last week. We looked at one verse together where Jesus was so intentional about clearly wanting us to put to rest any fear regarding whether or not God is always good to us. I'm saying how much more powerful of a picture do we, could we ever be given? Because if God was doing that, here in the worst of the worst circumstances, God himself, right? The son who takes sin upon himself, the worst of the worst, then how much more can we trust God to do so, to do good, to always be about our best even in lesser circumstances? And I'm saying, you know what I'm talking about It's those particular circumstances and some of you are going through them right now where you struggle to see God acting in love. You struggle to see God being in control. Maybe it's your family. And there's a part of you that wonders if God's given up on your marriage because you fought, you fought, you fought. And you wonder if he's given up. You, you wonder if his work is done with, with, with a child that just breaks your heart and you continue to see pain after pain after pain. You wonder if God is not working in regards to your health. You wonder if God's not working when it comes to your mission 
that seems to be receiving more hostility the more you actually follow Jesus. This appears to be where the very country in which we live is headed. So when it is, we are brokenhearted. But we're not surprised. After seeing Jesus' life, he did all of this perfectly. And yet he faced rejection. I want to show you one more scripture that the more this plays out, the more amazing it becomes to me. It's the Apostle Paul who writes one day to the Corinthians, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He's like, they didn't understand the wisdom of God. They didn't know who they were dealing with. If they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, come on, does this mean they are less guilty? Absolutely not. Does this mean there is no fault with them? Absolutely not. They killed him out of their own will and out of their own hatred. But the great providential irony that exists here is if they had accepted him, then they would not have killed him. And if they had not killed him, then there would be no salvation. It isn't that what they did was right. No, that's not what we're saying. It was absolutely wrong. What this is about is our great God was ruling over all of that for our salvation. In the end, it was God who put Jesus on the cross for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. So one question today, how does this, and I'm calling it this study, this talk, this scripture, how does this give you hope that God may still be at work? Because come on, if he was at work in that, how does this give you hope that God may still be you know, you know that that area of your life right now where you are struggling to see God loving, you are struggling to see God in control, how might the truth of today change our hope for what he's doing in your marriage? what he's doing with your kid. But what he wants to help you with in your finances or your health. And some of you are even finding yourself right now in a culture that is aggressively, aggressively 
harsh toward anybody who truly says they line up with Jesus. But it doesn't leave us hopeless. It leaves us going, yep, this is what they did to him. He does not leave us alone in this journey. I want to pray for us. And then I want to give you one more thought. God, I think it's probably safe to say that in a group of people, like is represented among us here today, God, there are stories after stories. God, situations where right now there are some people struggling to see you loving in the middle of this struggle. There are people who are struggling to see you in control of the middle of their circumstances. And I thank you for the picture today. I thank you for the, for the clarity that you give us. I, I thank you for helping us to see as Jesus walked this out. Even when it looked like the worst of the worst of the worst circumstances, when, when Jesus hangs on a cross and takes his, life, his last breath, it, it would appear as though this is not love. And this is not God in control. When the truth was, This is the most beautiful picture that could ever be painted that makes us want to shout, God, you are good. God, will you give us eyes to see today? And will you give us hope to believe today? Will you give your kids strength to continue to fight? God, give us wisdom to continue to know how to walk this out with courage. It's in Jesus' name that I ask it. Amen. So consider this. When the crowd was faced with the choice of what to do with Jesus, Matthew tells us that they made a statement that goes like this, crucify him. But they also say this phrase, his blood is on us and our children. They had no idea. That was exactly what they needed. They had no idea that what they needed was the blood of Jesus to cover them. And what they needed was the blood of Jesus to cover their children. And that is precisely what God was doing in that moment and what he had been doing since eternity past. He had set it all in motion. 
So imagine today, you got a friend, you got a family member, and right now, they want nothing to do with Jesus. <laughs> I'm saying in light of what we've seen today and a story that we have been reminded of, what hope does that give you that Jesus is not done working? Who done it? Who killed Jesus? God did. Who done it? Who gave me life? God did. And so today, we say, thank you, Jesus, for the blood.